So we are in uh, Fra Sands' recording studio here in the beautiful little village of Mayo Bridge. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, uh, this is Safe Place Studios. Um, and I'm here with Jared McKenna. Um, I reckon many of the 12 of you listening have heard of Jared McKenna. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jared's a great guy. He's, uh, well, aside from the fact he's from Australia, he's still a good guy, you know? And, uh, well played. Um, and uh, he's been up with us in Rostreva for a few days, and uh, he was speaking last night at Borderlands, our first Borderlands event in mm. Belfast. Yeah, that was wonderful. Um, yeah, it was really, really good. And so we're going to just talk about this is uh, the this podcast um, is the Guardians of the Flame podcast, and I, I suppose the idea there is um, the flame, not just some kind of system of belief, but the sense of humanity itself, and how can we profile. Um, celebrate, be inspired by people who are really trying to live in such a way as to value people and see mm. the humanity of people and see the imprint of the divine in all people. Mm. Um, so Jared is living there. I'm not going to go hugely into his past. We might touch on it or in, in a lot of his work. We might touch on that later in the podcast. And I reckon some people listening have probably heard and read about a lot of that stuff, but um He's won awards in Australia for his work with refugees and asylum seekers and has really put his life um, uh, on the line uh, and and sought to be someone who uh, is a champion for those who are very much in his own country on the margins. And um, so I find it very inspirational, Jared. So it's great having you here. Oh, thanks, Johnny. Uh, with us and yeah, I, I love your work, and uh, I, I've heard about you literally <laughs> from people around the world. So it's it's great to finally be here and and see what's happening on the ground and the beautiful uh, sprouts of an alternative that you you have uh, coming through. So oh, it's been yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, it's been really good, and we it looks like we might get you back sometime soon. So that'll be really cool. That'd so. be fun. Yeah. So why don't we just start with, so your last name is McKenna, which is very obviously <laughs> is a giveaway that you've got a connection to this land. So mm. um, tell us about how do you, how does it feel to be back here? This is the second time you've been here in your life, really, I think. Yeah. And give us a bit of that. Yeah, Johnny, it, it moves me in ways that are incredibly sentimental and problematic. Like um, uh, we, we were talking a little earlier about um, how those of us who are vaguely Irish um, uh, can be the most problematic because uh, when you have romanticised half-stories um, that convey real trauma that you have no proximity to the pain, mm -hmm. it can be very easy to actually um, perpetuate and, and feed um, what dehumanises um, rather than uh, stories which, um, when you meet people, you find out that it's it's far more complex. So for for me, it's 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 all of that. It's um, mm. uh, as we were joking last night at um, that beautiful event, and we we're talking about these these ancient stories that on both sides of uh, the troubles have have been read and are so meaningful. Whether it's um, heard as you're standing in mass and the gospels are being read, or whether it's uh, behind the pulpit in a Presbyterian church on a Sunday, um, opening up some of the stories that have so often been weaponized because we we don't allow ourselves to um, dig into them in such ways that um, the the flame actually warms us and humanizes us rather than burns others. 
and doing some of that work and joking. Um, for some of us, these stories are divine. For some of us, we wish the stories were divine. And some of us think that any stories to do with the divine are completely daft. Mm-hmm. And yet these are the, um, the, the dreamings, the imaginations that, that float um, through these streets and could offer an alternative. And uh, that last bit about those of us who think um, any talk of the divine is completely daft, um, uh, the question that people often ask here, and, and it's a joke, but it points to something very real, is, yeah, but uh, are you a Catholic atheist or are you a Protestant atheist? Yeah, like, what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, our experience yesterday of uh, um, being in Belfast and uh, seeing a, a yeah, tell young us about student. You. So you tell with, us where your family are from. Oh, yeah. sure, sure. I, I was going to mention the young student who was wearing a Catholic uniform um, with a hijab, yeah. and it's um, it's 2018, and there are different there are different questions. Or our, our mate um, John last night playing, and uh, the reality of you know uh, his accent, and people refer to me as Irish um, because my dad was born here, and because I'm. Um, pigmentally challenged and have a lack of melanin, uh, people assume that I'm somehow more Irish than my brother whose ancestry is clearly African. Kenyan. And yeah. and yet he's, um, uh, the, the continent um, which his ancestors, um, uh, in a way, like listening to John, he, he knew more of the um, ancient worldview of uh, the Celts than... Um, those who, so yeah, just the complexities of, of all of that. And in the midst of talk of, you know, Brexit at the moment and these ongoing things. And I, I find being here fascinating. But you asked about my family connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So go, where, where are your family from then? Sure. So the, the McAteers, um, uh, my uh, uh, grandmother's side, um, are from Akadui. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a, a... I used to live right next to Akadui, yeah, a real north coast area. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's a place where um, uh, people from this little emerald isle lean in and go, what? <laughs> they even don't understand the accent. They're like, well, what are you saying? Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, but my dad was born in Coleraine uh, because it was the tradition to, to head back to um, where your mother was um, to, to give birth. Uh, and in terms of the McKenna's, um, do you remember? Because I, I got it wrong. Yeah, Dungannon. <laughs> Dungannon yeah. instead of Donegal. Yeah. Um, and so I got a message from my dad going, it's not Donegal, it's Dungannon. <laughs> Dungannon um, yeah. uh, but the family um, moved to Belfast and are from the Ardoin, which for people here means a... Well, maybe you can explain a, a little bit yeah. of what, um, yeah, well, for, how, for how people, loaded that is. Yeah, for people listening, the divides in Northern Ireland um, are Protestant Catholic, but they're also class, is middle class and working class, essentially, are the, are the two. And those um, the are very huge divides. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say the Protestant Catholic divide is the most important, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so Belfast is northeast, south and west. Um, the Ardoin is in a part of North Belfast that would have been very known as very Republican. Um, so it would have been a real an area where there would have been a lot, strong support for the Republican movement and the IRA during the Troubles. And it's right next door to the Greater Shankill area, which is a very loyalist area, a very pro-British area where I used to live. Um, uh, the Ardoin became 
most well known recently in the in the early two thousands when mm-hmm. uh, the Holy Cross Primary School little school kids were walking up to school and because North Belfast is like a patchwork quilt Protestant community, Catholic Protestant Catholic or Republican loyalists right next door to each other, and on the way to, on the like the quarter of mile walk from the Ardoin shops up to Holy Cross Primary School girls would have to go through the Glen Bryn loyalist area. And at that time, there were there was mar- um, protests. And so it made the international news, um, this picture of five-year-old schoolgirls walking by while a hundred protesters shouted and screamed mm. abuse at her, at them. Um, and that was, you know, that was, it was tragic. And that was Ardoin, Ardoin kids, uh, in many ways, I think, being victimized. But they were also victimized by ah, just our tragic long history here, yeah. you know. Uh, so it's fascinating that your family's from the Ardoin because it's not an area that Protestants would ever walk into, you know. Yeah, of and they wouldn't know it. You know? So, well, it's yeah. it's like that text message that um, I got uh, from my dad yesterday uh, when I told him that uh, you'd come with me um, to. <laughs> to visit family and uh, dad asking if you were a Protestant <laughs> takes back to him, not today. <laughs> so we, we went into, um, you know, like, uh, it's not, it's not really a pub. There's no Guinness signs on the outside. This yeah, like when people talk about club has snooker, two snooker tables upstairs and a couple of bars downstairs and, and the, the cameras outside and the cages and, the um, steel reinforced door. So if, uh, um, a bomb does go off out front, um, yeah. uh, inside will be safe. I mean, what I found fascinating was your dad had said, just go in and, and, and meet some old guy and he'll know your grandfather. And I was like, you know, I mean, I've lived here all my life. I'm a New Zealander. If you listen to this for the first time, but I've lived, moved here when I was nine. Um, and I was like, yeah, but I'm not sure you can really just go up to some old guy and he'll know your grandfather. <laughs> we go up to the, the bar and Jared says to the barman, "Do you know, would you have known a Dennis McKenna? And uh, and the guy was about 30 and he goes, no. And then the guy next to him, who was an older gentleman, immediately goes, I know your grandfather. I lived opposite him, number five. He was in 2A or 2B, was it? You know, and I'm like, wow, that is crazy. You yeah. know? And then he goes, that guy over there will know him better. And then this yeah. other old dude comes over and starts talking and showing us around and yeah, it was amazing and so it was incredible to see such a strong connection with your family in belfast yeah. and and getting the tour and and some of the details and um uh like it was the um yeah i, I mean things that i'm not sure what to mention and, and what to leave out but how um, the the sense of the trauma um, and the sense of how deeply involved in um, in what would be framed as the struggles um, uh, and how that relates to what people refer, refer to as the troubles and um, the the mix of poverty and the shame of that and the pride of being involved and why my grandfather's name is known and uh, um, all of that, it's very, and that's what I mean by how it's those of us who are vaguely Irish who can um, actually be the most problematic because it can be easy to glorify and romanticize um, what is actually tragedy. And it's not abstract, like um, casual mentions of where kneecappings happen um, and then pointing to photos of snooker players here and all the rest and how it's all um, like a 
very passe mentioning of um, uh, what is quite horrific realities. And um, these are these are kindly people um, showing us around where um, family is, and um, that collected sense of uh, well, as Brona put it last night in her brilliant kind of sharing, that we often have identities where we know who we're not but we don't know who we are. Mm. And um, how tragic it is when we don't have stories that stretch um, further and deeper than naming who they are and what we're against. Mm. And um, in a time where, um, because of globalisation, there, uh, there is instead of a, a deep, grounded, roots-down identity work where um, we can actually... Um, dig down deep enough that we know the place that we are so we can open that to others mm. and actually practice the kind of hospitality where um, we can welcome others as as we have been welcomed mm. because there is something firm enough there mm. to actually bring others into mm. with a sense of generosity. And people are so generous here, mm. like so incredibly generous here. Mm. Instead, um, there can be this kind of cheapness where we just reinforce not me, not me, not me. I'm righteous because of this, yeah. um, because of having suffered this, because of... And um, it becomes very flimsy and it becomes... It's quite brittle. And uh, um, the beautiful thing of even visiting family and yeah. um, my great-aunt Marie and her talking about um, doing outreach work to poor people yeah. and victims of domestic violence yeah. and yeah. on both sides and... Um, that kind of stuff really inspires me. It was cool to see in your own family background, uh, you know, as your, like your great aunt or something, had obviously was a real fine woman and had, had done set up a play group for kids and, mm. and the, next to the, the Holy Cross, uh, the Catholic Church there at the top of the Kremlin Road. Um, <clears throat> just kind of connecting to Australia, you talked uh, in the last couple of days a bit about it's where I've heard it is in Tanahasi Coates' book about growing up in Baltimore, mm. uh, where he talks about the myth of whiteness, mm -hmm. and then you know you talk about being an Irishman moving to Australia and where you've kind of become white, but you weren't always white. And mm. What is what's what is all that about? How do you understand? Yeah, that? I find um, and to go back to John's story again. Um, and uh, him sharing, and um, this is what it is to be Irish. Mm. The, this um, uh, Kenyan lawyer mm. um, who's grown up here, mm. who sounds much more like my relatives than me, and yet um, th the shape of Irish white supremacy has got everything to do with the forgetting of history other than that which is names them who aren't us. But um, the complexity of um, looking like your enemy and needing to ask last names to make sure it's clear who's in and who's out. Mm. And even the fact that we refer to these conflicts as, um, you know, Protestant and Catholic, when uh, it's got so much more to do with um, other complex realities. And mm. those who know IRA history um, uh, sometimes want to airbrush out, um, you know, for the Easter Rising down in Dublin and the, the Presbyterians who were in, involved and um, the, a, a dream for a, a nation to be united wasn't a Protestant versus Catholic. Um, it, it was a, a people expressing something different. But when those bits are edited out, we fall into mythologies um, of easy 
enemies and uh, forget that our own stories are far more complex. Um, and so there was that line in the movie, The Commitments, that um, uh, we're, we're the black people of white people. Mm. But um, when we forget the histories and we relate to them as, as ways of um, uh, vilifying another instead of having resources for empathy for the other, mm. for things that we need to both um, uh, repent of and remember in such ways that we can understand the suffering on both sides. Once you've wept with people, and that's why I, I love so much what um, uh, Fra and his family last night were doing in their music, mm. um, because it is on this land that through song and through dance and through storytelling and and goodness how we love to tell stories, that we can enter into something which does unify, that there is, is something that brings us together that is deeper than our scars and our pain. And um, in fact, that the scars and the pain can be something which unite us if we're not weaponizing them against one another, but with disarmed hearts to be able to approach one another and go, I know that in my story. And uh, I know how easy it is to turn that into something that I use against others. Mm. And that's what happened in Australia. Mm. And I know that um, uh, in terms of my McKenna's um, coming out in the 70s, it's a very different story um, to um, when the Irish um, uh, came out um, uh, in terms of the English colonisation and uh, whether it be convicts um, uh, or immigrants um, or... Um, uh, the gold rush, but uh, to forget the own stories of colonization and then to participate in the colonization of others. Mm. And um, while at the same time romanticizing um, that we're victims. Mm. And so it's this weird coercive power play that instead of actually owning our own stuff mm. and uh, being able to have amazing solidarity with the First Nations people of Australia, the Aboriginal people of Australia and all their diversity, that um, we, we can claim um, we're hard done by by the English while joining the English in the colonising of another place. Ah, oh, man, it's... Um, and that's some of the stuff that um, we have to relate to the stories in such ways that we can, as we did last night, share poems. Um, it was a great honour for me to share poetry from... Um, Kev Carmody, an incredible could you, Aboriginal. Could you give us that? Because uh, yeah, you started that off yesterday. If I don't know if you can remember it, but yeah, said... and he has so many brilliant um, uh, poems. Like his um, poem "Comrade Jesus Christ" is one of uh, my favourite. But I do love the start of his um, uh, poem "Thou Shalt Not Steal," which is also a a, a song um, that he sings. But it starts 1788 down in Sydney Cove. The first boat people land. Boat people, of course, is the term that um, Australians sometimes use for those who arrive seeking safety from uh, conflict areas today. So he says, 1788, down in Sydney Cove, the first boat people land. They say, sorry, boys, our gain, your loss. We're going to have to take your land. And these new British laws, if you break them, surely you're going to hang with chains around your neck and hang. Uh, with convict chains around your uh, neck and hands, um, uh, and moves on to the chorus. And we told you, black man, thou shalt not steal. Uh, black man, thou shalt not steal. We're going to civilise your black barbaric lives, and we're going to teach you how to kneel. 
But didn't your Jesus say you're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal? So to you, white man, we say, thou shalt not steal. To you, white man, this land, we better heal. And the 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 whiteness of the Irish elsewhere in the world, and there's a fascinating book about the U.S. experience of the Irish called um, uh, When the uh, Irish Became White. Uh, but what it is to give up our particularities and our stories and our language. Like I, I was, um, I, I preached down in Dublin on um, Sunday in a, a Church of Ireland church and uh, there was uh, prayers afterwards in the language of my ancestors and I wept and wept and wept because I don't speak any Irish Gaelic. I mean, I got Cade of Lulcher and, and that's it, right? Like, so Johnny much like the taking of land at home and the destroying of culture at home and a colonizing Christianity occupying what um, would otherwise be a Christianity that looked more like Christ at home and the reality that um, in the left hand holds a Bible and a right hand holds a gun Um, and yet Europeans arrive in Australia and see something that looks like Acts 2 and Acts 4, people sharing all in common and no one being in need, Mm. people living on the land in ways where people have vines and fig trees, living in peace and unafraid, Um, or the Australian, uh, you know, equivalent, and yet they think that God shows up with them, even though these are people who have been there Mm. for 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 years, or as some anthropologists recently think, maybe up to 80,000 years. And so what it is to, um, and the privilege it's been to me for people who, like Pop Allen Kicker, a Noongar elder from the neighbourhood that um, I lived in for eight years, um, or Uncle Seelan Garlett, um, um, and uh, Annie Marilyn, and uh, elders that have helped me appreciate that it's actually learning from Aboriginal culture that I've been able to start to decolonize my own Christianity, ways of relating, which um, even though Jesus rejects um, the forms of saviors that we often also want to be, I mean, one of the greatest um, miracles of the church is um, Jesus can turn water into wine, but we can turn a a brown-skinned Palestinian Jesus into a white European to back up. I mean, that's quite a miracle. It's a demonic miracle, but it's quite a miracle. And, uh, you know, it's those kind of complexities that we need songs to sing, Um, uh, not just the same songs the worldwide that have been commercialized and sold back to us as worship music but what are the what are the worship songs of lament and praise that grow out of the places where we are in the languages that people speak where we can step across those barriers and that was a beautiful thing to me of um um my new mate alan and uh that opportunity the other night and how significant um you know on my knees with people that um just a couple of generations back, uh, our families were killing each other. And it was in, that was uh, Alan Emerson, the, the pastor of uh, Emmanuel Church. Well, he's in Porter Down, but also in, in Lurgan, where you were. And Lurgan's one of the most divided small towns in, in Northern Ireland. And um, it was significant, I think, in a way for you to be there. And, um, uh, and I yeah. love that fellow. And, and uh, I posted 
a photo of the street where my dad played as a kid as he went to visit his granny um, with you know, a 1916 mural on the side of what was my dad's granny's home. Mm. And um, th that that provokes all kinds of things for those on the other side. Mm. And um, uh, Alan left a love heart. Mm. And the significance of that, um, for him to actually appreciate his own tradition in such ways that he would allow me to appreciate mine. And yet the gospel relativizes that because we are brothers yeah. called to, to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so he can provide the breathing room for me to appreciate that yeah, and so not we don't have feel to kind of ashamed of that. Anesthetize our stories, you know, that you were able to share a picture with, on, on social media, which would be perceived as... Uh, well, the, the Protestant loyalist people would would reject what that mural was, 1916. Mm. They would reject mm. that that was anything good. But the fact that you were acknowledging it's part of your story and then for a Protestant loyalist, a Protestant unionist today to look at it and appreciate that's your story, you know, love heart, you know, like, a, like yeah. you know, there's something uh, I heard. Um, and, and that shows such a generosity yeah. on his side and a deep appreciation. Yeah. And we're not he, saying he stories a, aren't allowed. We're that's saying right. We're allowed to tell your stories. It's, we, we need stories. I, I heard somebody say identities are what make us different. Our identities are what make us different. Stories are what make us the same. You know? Wow. And it's, yeah. Um, and so we've all got the stories, you know. And and he's a brother who's who takes press so seriously, and that comes out of somebody who who has undergone the grace of God. Um, and I, I want to learn to be that kind of generous with those on the other side of the um, the complex uh, um, hurts and pains and traumas that um, are on the land that I was born on and now call home mm. and the land that um, my father was born on and um, uh, the family talk about me coming home and, and what is it to... And they're, they're difficult realities, they're difficult... Um, but to undergo that love in such ways that those things aren't forgotten and related to that, oh, well, we're all taking part in the European mm. Um, mm. economy, so we'll just forget those things and move on. But actually, our baptisms mean that those stories are redeemed, so they become resources for empathy mm. and resources for um, uh, unity mm. in ways that uh, don't create an us against them, but an us with them and us for them that our us are them and that's a that's a very different so that was a very powerful experience for me on sunday night yeah i wonder could we talk a little bit about <clears throat> the concept of victimhood of being a victim i remember being uh, the first time i was in the holy land i was in jerusalem in the notre dame hotel listening to a guy called Rami Al-Hanan, who was, mm. um, you've probably, I don't know if you've met him or heard of him, but he's part of the parent circle, which is yeah. bereaved Palestinian and Israeli parents committed to peace and committed to building relationships. And he spoke about his uh, daughter, I think she was about 15, uh, being killed in a suicide bombing in a, in a cafe in Jerusalem, in West Jerusalem. And, and, and you know, the, he talked through very movingly the process of hearing there'd been a bomb um, and going to the hospital hoping, as he said, that the finger of God was not pointing at him, then, you know, finding his daughter's body. And, and, you know, and it was impossible not to be deeply moved by what he said. And his own father was an Auschwitz survivor. 
uh, his his wife's father was one of the um, Israeli war hero generals. But then after his daughter's death, talking about how he had a decision to make, was he going to spend the rest of his life enraged with these people or was he going to seek to understand why someone would hate him so much that he would be willing to blow himself up and his beautiful daughter, Smadar. Hmm. And he that led him to join this group of bereaved parents and he said, ultimately at one point I found it very moving, he said, I decided that I was not going to be a victim. Mm-hmm. And I think... You know, you spend a lot of time working with people on the margins that in many ways have been victimized. And and yet, you know, a lot of the fuel for the populist movement that's, you know, nearly got uh, Le Pen elected and, yep. and far-right politician in France, dangerously far-right. Mm. Um, or the situation Trump, in Brazil. You know, Brazil, you know. Like, yeah. And so victimization is very much fueling a lot of that. And, and some people, they are victims. They're victims of, of capitalism, of greed, mm. of, uh, you know. But somehow in the kingdom, God doesn't want us to just get over it. Mm. Uh, our stories are so deeply important. But somehow somehow there must be something beyond victimhood. I don't know. Do you, what do you think about that? And how does yeah, that work? How, how, how can our we... stories can be handed back to us in ways that, um, are actually expunged of the toxicity um, and it's you know like when we were down in, in Dublin we were talking about what I yesterday referred to as the hidden troubles mm. that cross sectarian lines mm. um, and that's of the terrorism that is domestic and found in homes where in this nation uh, you know the statistics are similar to home that one in four women will experience um, sexual abuse and the realities of domestic violence or in Australia that you know 53 women this year were killed not by strangers and we grow up with this sense of stranger danger that be fearful of the other it's the other that's the threat when in fact it's it's those within our own homes and own families who were most likely to die at the hands of um, who were most likely to be on the receiving end of um, sexual and physical violence. And um, we that's harder to, to name and talk about because there, we find out that the us, we are the them. And um, the toxicity of masculinity that forms in this um, victimhood that um, men can't name that um, are we need to be liberated from toxic patriarchy mm. that um that which creates the fragility um where uh, coercion and, and and violence um would become a way of expressing frustration um it, we need to be saved mm. from that stuff we need to be liberated from mm. from that stuff and uh that whether it's the the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse um, in Australia that has just happened in an apology. And I've I've experienced a bit of pushback um, from some people. um, And for for those that aren't aware, I myself um, exposed a a pedophile uh, um, and, you know, people helped him skip the country and sold his house and car and helped him re-establish and then was contacted by the FBI because he was found in a US jurisdiction in Costa Rica um, in 2012 and then um, called to testify against him because of a charge 
um, in 2016 that emerged and there's over 30 victims. Um, and it was, um, you know, uh, church going people who helped him Up skip. Yep. Yeah, and, um, lied to the police and destroyed computer evidence, not before, um, photos actually went out on the internet and stuff that I don't really talk about, but has deeply shaped me, Johnny. Um, and what is it to find um, something that is actually good news for survivors of such realities where the institutions, which we literally call some church spaces a sanctuary, mm. actually became a place where we didn't pray, but we were preyed upon. Mm. And um, uh, there's that crosses doctrinal lines. We can't, as many want to quickly do and say, oh, it's just a Catholic thing. and. Mm. Um, no, it's right across the board. Uh, Pentecostals, Pe Presbyterians, Baptists, Churches of Christ, like um, Methodists, like it's all in the mix. Um, and there's something about um, faith communities that is most horrific for us because we think they're of all places. If this is places to have anything to do with the God who hears the cries of the suffering, if this is anything to do with a God who's revealed to us in Jesus, um, surely not there, and that's why it's so sickening. But it's also local football clubs and scout groups and um, community groups, and and there is this um, uh, toxicity that is there in the community that we cover up, and if we can blame it and say it just exists over there, and the real question becomes, okay, so what does it look like to be liberated from those things and experience their freedom from the dehumanizing that is so often co covered up? What does confession look like? And I think that's the work we have to do. I think that's um, that we we think about these as different issues, but it's actually it's all part of the same sick fabric that that runs through that we desperately need to de-stitch and actually um, uh, knit together something more humanizing, more beautiful. And that's why I love that you use Jonathan Sachs um, imagery of the flame. And what is it that this is something that can, can warm and provide life and can cook food and um, can keep us safe, but it's also something that can burn. Desmond Tutu, in a very similar way, uses, he talks about religion is like a knife and some people use a knife to butter bread to fill the, feed the homeless and others use a knife to kill their sister and brother. And on this land, we have ancient stories which name those dynamics um, and seeking to struggle for a way out of those ways. I think I, the, it's very moving to hear you use that phrase, the silent troubles, because I think, you know, we were, we had an experience in the last couple of days where we were talking to people who kind of wanted to talk about the troubles. Um, and then you started to talk about the silent troubles and then people started going back to the troubles because hmm. they don't want to have to deal with that the very difficult, messy reality that's almost so many homes in this country are dealing yeah, with. Yeah, because you know, it, it, the if, I have, of child abuse and if I have one friend violence. who's a Protestant, well, I've moved past that stuff. I've got one friend who's a Catholic, I've moved past that stuff. But it's possible to do that and still not listen to the voices of sisters and others in our communities who um, are beaten at home and um, there is no space for them to express that. And then when it, with a thin veneer of piety, 
um, we encourage them to keep silence. And we need to name the fact that anything that silences the stories of those who are suffering is demonic. There's, there's nothing righteous, holy or godly about that which silences and hides um, that which is a cry for redemption. Um, the the hearing those cries is actually the start of being able to respond to it. And so we need spaces where those stories can be heard and we can do the, the, the real work of... And that's what I started to say. I've had some pushback because I said, I don't want a prompt, uh, an apology from my Prime Minister um, as a survivor um, in, in an institution um, in Australia that he's asked for after this Royal Commission while still children are still being abused and not just children adults as well in these um, detention centers in manus and nauru and elsewhere while that's ongoing i don't want an apology because if the abuse is still going and we keep saying sorry and forgive me why it continues it's 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 nothing that looks like biblical forgiveness biblical forgiveness is never saying it's okay you didn't mean it it's not that serious it is saying it is wrong and instead of forgiving and forget we must remember so that we can forgive so it never happens again real forgiveness reverses the cycles of dehumanization and revenge um, that is 70 times 7 um, that we see in Lamech. And when Jesus talks about um, uh, forgiveness in the 70 times 7, he's directly referencing the undoing of retribution, retaliation and abuse that continues to multiply um, when it's not dealt with. And if it doesn't cut through that stuff and if it's able to continue, it's not forgiveness. Um, forgiveness always liberates those who have been wronged first because it, forgiveness demands a truth-telling. Forgiveness demands that light must be shown on what is darkness, not that we forget what has happened and turn out the lights again. And um, some people are like, you have politicised this apology and brought in the issues of refugees because you care so much about that. But it's a political issue. And somebody said, you're playing off one minority group against another, refugees against survivors. As a survivor who is trying to let my baptism into the crucified and resurrected one take that seriously, I can't divide up these issues. Um, as Martin Luther King would put it, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are bound together in a simple, single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So people experiencing this kind of abuse at the moment in Australian detention centres for people seeking safety, that is the abuse that is being apologised for. And I can't say thank you for an apology that this government is continuing to do that. And I think that's the that's not to take away for how healing and significant it is for some people. Mm. Um, and uh, um, but yeah. there's more work to do. So forgiveness is is transformational and it always uh, it, and it starts with truth and truth telling, and we can't deny the truth and it's not covering that up. Um, and I know <clears throat> we use a cycle of reconciliation by a guy called Ron Crabill. Yeah. And 
one of the steps in the cycle is recovering your identity. Yeah. Uh, because he would say that the reality is if you've been treated like a dog, now some people don't like using that metaphor, but if you've been treated like a dog, you'll act like a dog, you know, mm. uh, and you have to recover your sense of identity that I am not w what was done to me. You yeah. know, I may have been treated like a piece of shit, but I am not a piece of shit. Yeah. I'm a child of God. I'm Amen. created in God's image. And, Amen. But that process of recovering identity is difficult for people. Um, and so the truth has to be told and, uh, you have to be gentle with yourself and people have to be gentle with you. And Johnny, talk about the final stage in that because it's my favorite. Yeah, the risk, risky relationship. Um, and after uh, risky relationship, a legacy? Uh, oh, the, yeah. Well, so the, the other um, the other five-step program is, is a forgiveness journey. That's mm. the one you're referring to. And, um, and in that, you know, there's this acknowledging your anger, um, choosing to to forgive and not take revenge, but the the very end uh, is to leave a legacy of love, um, uh, which is a very positive thing. It's not yeah. forgiveness is this, well I'm just going to be a doormat, or forgiveness is just I'll just let bygones be bygones and hope to build my life and forget it, dig it down deep, mm. um, or to to say it didn't happen and just throw it out the window. No, but to say it did happen but I'm being transformed. My identity has been transformed back to who I really am. Um, and now I am going to positively leave a legacy of love, you know, which is, that's real gospel. That's kingdom. Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, and, and for me, it's been the most, um, so there are ways to tell my story that are true in terms of how I got involved in justice work where I don't have to constantly expose, um, parts of my story that are very painful and for large periods of my life, um, people not being able to sit with the reality, like, you know, when we're talking about um, the hidden troubles and people move back to talk about um, safer things. Um, but the, the, the truth of my story is either I dealt with the anger and powerlessness um, through seeing it transformed instead of thinking that it's bad, it's awful, but the very energy for what I do is that which would otherwise kill me if I didn't surrender it in prayer. And so my passion around contemplative prayer and as a charismatic um, is that I need those things to see the things that would otherwise destroy me transformed into the power of God to deliver me. And that is good news for people in our situation. Um, because instead of saying, bury it, it's bad, um, sanctified, people don't feel those things, um, being able to step into lament and see our mourning transformed into dancing, but it's the same energy expressed as grief that then becomes, as it's transmuted in prayer, the grace that becomes a power for us to act in the world. And if we if we don't have spiritualities of transfiguration, we will too easily use the cross as a metaphor for killing off the things in us that God wants to use to transform in the energy to live the resurrection. And I hear so many people going, I need to die to that, I need to die to that, I need to die to that. And we kill off the resurrection work in us and act like that's the piety that was being asked of us instead of no, 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 that stuff that you would otherwise suppress and bury, that's the very stuff that God wants to transfigure and transform so that you can take part in what Nicholas Bidyev talks about as the universal resurrection, that coming day when everything will experience the power 
that death isn't the final word, that what's been done to us isn't what names us, that there is a power that is deeper still, a deeper magic, mm. if we're going to use mm. C.S. Lewis's um, uh, in incredible phrase from uh, Ross yeah. Trevor yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Um, where you live, but going up onto... Um, you know, that rock that for yeah, him Clark, was, Clark the, Moore, yeah. was the inspiration for the stone um, table, the stone probably, table yeah. that Aslan was on. And we need to, we need to understand the deeper magic. And I think that's the importance of telling the ancient um, mythologies, um, ancient dreamings of our different societies, um, which white people, when they remember that white is what they gave up their stories and their ancestors for to take part in the oppression of others in this myth um, that um, centered uh, Europe and certain European nations as uh, you know manifest destiny the doctrine of discovery and the the Christianizing of um, uh, satanic taking of other people's stories lands languages religions cultures um, if we can again find those things and find ourselves being rescued from forms of Christianity that don't look like Christ and regaining those ancient stories which actually have resources in them and seeing how they too are transformed instead of killing off those things, denying those things. We talk about the internal journey and the external journey as if they're two separate things. They're not. Um, these these issues are like there is no separation from the internal and external. Uh, when we talked about like um, the the sarks or the flesh, and what it is to to die to those things, um, that is the in internalization in our psyche of the principalities and powers. So our bodies need to be saved from the flesh. That is to say, um, our our physicality, um, our, the goodness of our bodies needs to be saved from the bad ways that our bodies have been harmed. And I, I'm so convinced that if we have theologies that say that the earth is bad and our bodies are bad, or it's more subtle that um, we're going to escape um, the goodness of the land and the goodness of our bodies, we can never name the traumas that exist in our bodies so that they can be healed and the traumas that exist on the land so they can be healed. And so we will want to escape everything that Jesus came to redeem and refer to that as being pious Christians. Yeah, you were saying the other day, it's like we want to, we want Jesus to save us from the very thing he, he saved us for. Yeah. We were, you were just talking about um, the hike we went on, a small hike up the behind our center in Ross Trevor, um, just up the side of Sleeve Martin. You come to a big rock, which is in Irish, Clockmore, uh, which which means big rock or big stone. Um, uh, so, uh, and C.S. Lewis wrote a letter to his brother. I've probably said this in every podcast. I think I said it to Brian Zond. He said, we should have called the podcast notes from Narnia, but I think <laughs> I was a bit tacky personally. Um, but, uh, we See, if you're American, yeah. you would have jumped in there straight away. <laughs> no offense, Brian, if, you, if he's probably not or, listening. Or American. <laughs> yeah. we, we love you. That's why we make fun of you. Yeah. That, yeah. That's how Irish and Australian yeah, culture yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, I know, totally. <laughs> so we were up at Clockman. C.S. Lewis said to, uh, his brother, um, 
where the Morn Mountains come down to the village of Rastreva. For me, that is Narnia. And so you, as we walked up that that very space, you come to this big, big stone, um, which doesn't take a wild leap of imagination to imagine it being a, where Aslan is lying and the, and the, the wicked queen is about to kill him, you know. Um, and as we were up there, and I was talking about the well, the, the Irish myth is Finn McCool through that rock and you know, all this kind of stuff. I was very impressed that you then started riffing on Irish mythology in a way that was actually deeper than I know. And actually, I'd say most Irish people wouldn't really know some of those deeper stories. But through it, you were able to kind of touch on, you know, you were really touching on Girard's scapegoat theory and all this kind of... Do you want to give us a little bit of Irish mythology and uh, and and some of well yeah what you what you see in it and... yeah and these are stories that um, I think I was taught to think of as um, pagan and ancient and stupid until learning from uh, people like um, Uncle Ray Minicon or um, Uncle Graham Polson um, or. Uh, Annie Margaret and Uncle Seelan Garlet, um, these Aboriginal elders who have so deeply um, formed me in ways that have helped save me. And I would never relate to um, what is sometimes used the English term, um, the dreaming, the, the Aboriginal creation stories, which um, some of those influences on me love that term and use it, and others uh, have whole talks like Uncle Ray about why it doesn't capture what's actually being said. And I've learned to appreciate so deeply that um, the, the song lines and those dreaming and how it names for d certain seasons, what, um, uh, you know, it, it'll help you, stories which help you navigate the land, like it's ancient form of Google Maps who also told you who you are and who you belong to and how you're to, to move in such a way um, that uh, you can... Um, hear the laments and um, praises of the rest of creation instead of our um, very sick uh, idea that humans are the centre of everything and it's only our soul, uh, as if our souls could be disembodied from our bodies, that matters instead of good news that is good news for everything. I mean, a, a lot of us need to become... Uh, much more um, uh, pagan to be much more truly Christian. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that um, those things that have been written off as pagan are closer to the Hebraic worldview and the Hebraic hope which Jesus fulfills than these kind of uh, Gnostic ideas of salvation which long for disembodied clouds with babies with harps and all that kind of stuff that has not only got nothing to do with the biblical hope, but in fact, um, what my ancestors sung and danced and told stories about on this land is better news than that. Mm. Um, and so I, I want to relate to the stories of my ancestors and their dreaming, if I can um, take a word from, from uh, my context and apply it here, um, but also see how Christ fulfills them. And so um, uh, the kind of relating to the, the comic book realities, I, I find it fascinating that out of the ancient void, um, uh, Don and uh, Donu, so the um, the deities of uh, the, the land, Don, the um, male deity, and the sky 
Donu um, were created and they had children and Brienne, who was the eldest son, and a bit like the Babylonian um, creation myths, which or the um, some ancient um, Indian, uh, which show up in some of the Vedic traditions as well. There are connections between it. But one of the things that interests me is that the um, deity of the skies on this land was feminine, while for others it's masculine. And um, for the ancient Celts, uh, often it was the the feminine deity which was slayed to create society, while for um, this land it's actually a male deity, which which tells a different story and orientates you in a different way. And some people are like, that's an awful story to tell. It's still about, you know, deicide, the killing of a god. And it's like, yeah, but I know lots of Christians that tell awful stories about a killing of a god, one god killing a lesser part of himself in Jesus so that we can be saved. And unless we can appreciate these ancient stories and how there is a better word than the spilling of the blood of whether it be um, Don or Abel, um, we can't hear the word that is spoken of a God who, who needs no blood, where we're revealed as the one who is desperately needs blood to be shed. And God undergoes that, exposes that, and then changes all of reality. And now all of reality is shot through with a forgiveness that means a different world is possible where no blood needs to be shed. And the realities of, um, uh, you know, as the Brienne kills uh, his father and the tears of um, uh, Danu um, form the waters of the sky and they fall to earth and as the bones of Don form uh, the rocks and um, the different body parts actually forms the land explaining um, the dreaming of this land and how to move on it in such ways that you understand that it's sacred. Um, and all of this has come at great costs of the gods. Um, then we can appreciate in terms of um, the creation stories, um, both of them, um, that uh, call us to live in between them in the way that they contradict. And that wasn't a scary thing for ancient Jewish people. Their flannel graph didn't have those two different creation stories meshed into one. They were two things that you lived in awe of and you lived under, not with understanding as a way that like we have power over it in terms of um, how we so often relate to those things but we actually stand under them and it produces in us a sense of mystery and awe um, that we can well, to use Chesterton's term that the it's the re-enchantment mm -hmm. of our world and um, so the two uh, acorns fall from the sky and one is the reincarnation of Don who was murdered so it's not the end of the story mm -hmm. Um, uh, and the other um, grows, both grow into trees and, and one becomes Finn, who is the first priest. Mm. And this conversation between um, the first priest who mediates for us um, uh, the mysteries and uh, uh, the um, divine who, um, from the oak that grows, and these are oaks that, um, you know, aren't abstract for anybody who's been a Ross Trevor. Mm. Um, as mm. we climbed up, they're the same oaks. Mm. They're the story of the dreaming that these these trees have actually teach us about our spirituality and we miss um, that this is this is not animism that is so often written from European Christianity but um, this is right throughout the Hebraic Bible when when Elijah is fed by um, 
the ravens by by these crows, much like the crows that um, St. Kevin um, down in Glendalock as he entered the waters and prayed until the crows came and nested in his hands. Um, they're, they're stories that are right throughout Scripture. And these these ravens are talked about in the Old Testament ministering to Elijah as angels. Why can't we connect our birds with messengers from God? Why do we so throw out all these things and adapt a Cartesian worldview where I think, therefore, I am this radical individualism that sees the earth as a machine, and then we add a little bit of Jesus on the end of that and wonder why we don't have a gospel that's good news to our unprecedented ecological crisis, is because we have muted and we cannot hear the cries of rest of creation that call us to worship. And so we think we have to put um, our earbuds in and listen to my mates from the Wren Collective or my mates from Hillsong United, and then I have a worship experience because we can't hear how, whether it's the 22s or the magpies or the um, uh, the crows that are here actually call us into a deeper worship. So, as I was saying, to go back to the story, Johnny, um, from this oak um, of um, Don... Uh, it has fruit and the fruit falls to the ground and this is humanity and humanity starts to rot from the inside and so the conversation between um, Don and Finn the first priest is what do we do about humanity rotting from the inside and the priest suggests that we need to introduce death so there can be renewal of the world and Don hates that idea and they fight and there's more blood being shed but now death is introduced as a as a mercy so that things can be renewed. We need a gospel that is a mercy, that has a better word than death, that doesn't come at the cost of uh, more people's blood being shed. And it's in that context we can redeem our ancient stories and see how these ancient dreamings have become a waking reality in Jesus who speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, to use Hebrews 12, 24. And I think that's the work we have to do in our ecological crisis. Mm find again how we don't worship creation but we always worship with creation for we are creation we are creation yeah. humanity is creation and it is our job as the ancient orthodox churches always insist to gather the cries and the praise of all creation and bring it round a table where it's offered back to god and God fills it with his presence and offers it back to us mm. as the table where all of history is going, mm. where all things are redeemed. And I think that's our work. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I love as you're talking, it just sounds like you're describing a, an indigenous spirituality that we probably were meant to live instead of this kind of modernist, enlightenment, uh, transactional Christianity that... Um, you have a quiet time in the morning, you say sorry for all the terrible things you've done, God forgives you, and you kind of struggle through the day. There's just so little imagination in so much of, uh, in so much of that. And, um, mm. uh, and ultimately, it reminds me of a, a, an old saying, it's, it's, uh, it's love, not, um, not noise, that, that makes uh, music in the ears of God. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think 
the idea of rediscovering our, our almost pagan stories, our, our, these old mythical stories, but seeing in them something of the cry of God that was in the indigenous people of our countries, you mm. know, instead of airbrushing them over and saying they're all terrible, mm. um, let's give you a new story, which is really just a simplified, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. modernist telling of yeah. an ancient Hebrew text. And in terms of the words that get translated pagan, that um, don't even the pagans chase after these mm. things? Um, mm. uh, don't even pagans greet mm. those who mm. who greet you? That kind of paganism is actually naming another people who have given up identities to take part in mm. empire. Mm. And we either have Christianities that are conducive to empires or Christianities that are conducive to creation. Mm. And Jesus asks us to step into a splendor that is more spectacular than Solomon's, who adds Bible verses to what other ancient empires were doing. But what is it for us to trust like lilies of the field and learn to contemplate the birds of the air and enter into the kingdom of God, which I'm convinced in my favorite language of uh, for the kingdom of God at the moment, the reign of God, is that of an ecology of kindness. Mm. What is it for us to find our right place, never over another person, but alongside all that has breath, and that that breath is to praise the one who gave us breath, um, and to take our rightful part in the ecology of creation, where um, not kind of cheap talk of stewardship, or the fetishization and romanticization of indigenous stories where we steal from other people, but what are our stories? And for those of us who are adopted and find it hard to dig past, that we're, we exist in cultures which have formed us, um, so what are the stories that are to be redeemed that are ours? And how do we actually relate to um, the Hebraic um, uh, texts that are ours by grace that we've been adopted into, grafted into um, this Jewish story and have much more Jewish hope um, that is good news for creation and learn to live in humble ways instead of the endless Christian celebrity, um, you know, Im imperial... Uh, legacy that um, those of us uh, in anxiety can sometimes uh, fall into and learn our desires and at the end of the day all we want to be is something which is a Christianized version of everything we need to be safe from. We've mm. got to speak a better word than that, John. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I actually, loving this conversation, we could talk all day. Well, we have been kind of talking all day. We should just <laughs> kind of record it all. But um, uh, I, I wonder to kind of bring it down to earth I, when I was a kid, I remember hearing a guy called John Smith that you know of. He was this Australian biker dude. Who, him and Tony Campolo were the first people that ever told me that a, a fundamental part of following Jesus was loving the poor. Mm. I I never grew up with that. I grew up going to church every day. I I, I knew we should take pity on the poor, maybe um, feel bad for them, but I, I didn't had no concept that a central part of our, the message of Jesus and the message of the Hebrew scriptures was mm. to, to look after the the poorest in society, the widows, the aliens, the orphans. And so, yeah, John Smith was, was great for that um, and really opened my eyes. And um, But I remember as a kid, 17, 18, 19, when I was hearing John Smith and I was hearing Tony Campolo, I was like, I want to be an amazing activist. I want to change the world. But it seems really difficult, you know. Mm. Um, and you know, if I'd heard you back then, 
uh, of course, you were younger than me then, you know. But if I'd heard some of the stories of what you're doing, I also would have gone, wow, that's amazing what Jared's doing with the first home project with refugees. And, and uh, But that's so difficult, I can't imagine. And then I suppose I've lived, and I don't think I've lived any kind of incredible life, but I've made certain small decisions sure, yeah, that I'll like, be... <laughs> that's ridiculous. I've, yeah, well, let's just... Uh, I'm a number nine, so, you know, I'm not going to... Let's not, you know, let's keep it small. Um, but I think I've made some small decisions, which on reflection, I was certainly not heroic, but we're just like, you know, that well, maybe we could do that. And it's turned out to be wondrous. And and I feel like, you know, there's this Mother Teresa quote we have at the back of our center. Um, we can do no great things, just small things with great love. And I look at the best decisions I've made. They really were quite small decisions, mm-hmm. but they were, they, they were animated by love of some kind i'm sure i don't know if it was great love but there was love there mm. and uh, but they've turned out to be really good one of the the best things we've done is is offer opportunities for young people from conflict areas to get out of their pressure cookers yeah, of, of the west bank of beirut of even rural areas outside durban south africa mm. uh, or syria or uganda um rwanda um and and so they've been able to come to the kind of safety of of Ireland, uh, we're, we're in Belfast and now in Ross Trevor, and they've been able to find themselves and, and be able to re-enter their societies, ready to kind of um, help to transform the stories of their lands. Um, and that's been a simple thing I've done, but it was just simple decisions to, to make, to do something. Mm. And it makes me realize that sometimes the most complicated or, or heroic things we can do are just simple little things. And I just wanted to end, could you tell us just about some of those uh, simple things you've done, like with the First Home Project or, or other ways you've just chosen to go, well, I guess we could invite people to live with us, or mm. I guess I could go and visit people in Manus and figured out how to do it. Uh, I don't mm. know, do you want to just tell us, you know, a, a couple of those little stories that Maybe mm. could help people not just glamorize you or think of you as a hero, but realize they could probably do that too. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, not really. <laughs> and <laughs> and part of the not really is the complexity of Australia and um, culturally you don't talk mm-hmm. about yourself. Mm. And uh, but another part of the not really is um, what I want to name for people instead is the journey. And encourage them to go do it. Mm. Um, so people can go looking, and there's other places to kind of. But um, what people, what people see is like, oh my goodness, you're hanging off a building six stories up mm. um, with a banner. That's incredible. That's mm. real Christianity. Right. And it's like, no, Christ, real Christianity is all the stuff that people will never see, never know about, at four o'clock in the morning with people that most people don't care about, and that's the real stuff. And it shouldn't automatically be turned into a story, particularly if you don't have the permission of those mm-hmm. whom story it is. And if you're exploiting somebody else's dignity to turn it into a testimony mm. without any of the complexities, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that stuff is actually part of the problem. But we should want to be great. Yeah. We, we should want, like James and John, to, like when Jesus comes into his power to have the really important seats that if there isn't something in us that desires amongst above everything else, that kind of greatness, um, we will seek a different kind of greatness. But what happens is we stay with Jesus. He doesn't 
say that is sinful and corrupt and fallen and like why would you even ask for that um we just hang out with jesus long enough and he's and he's like you got no idea what you're asking to have a swig of like um the baptism that you say that you want to receive do you do you really know what it is to be baptized in the spirit um because it's got nothing to do with warm fuzzies and carpet time and spiritual one night stand cycles and um seeking to go to the next revival meeting or the next conference in a far off land and that's what take you to the next um the, the baptism that we'll be baptized with is crucifixion and and they'll learn that and they'll undergo that um and in terms of like uh it's not Jesus to give who will be on his right and his left um you know turns out to be insurrectionist thieves um, that are crucified as he comes into his kingdom. And we need to take all that energy and not lose it to do something great, but realize that greatness is redefined in Jesus, to quote Martin Luther King, as service. So um, everybody listening, like we all need to go through a transformation of our desires. So what we actually seek is lives of humble service. Um, but we can't cheat the process. Mm. Uh, we have to have a, enough sense of ourself and our goodness that we want to do something great. Mm. And then we go on the journey and we find that it's not about us. Mm. Um, and that's often what's missing is that people cheat and they either want to be great and greatness looks like everything that we see in our um, Instagram formed reality that greatness is um, proximity to celebrities and uh, uh, people of importance thinking you're important and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and even the and, thing, what I was referring to there, the best things I've ever done, I mean, it was inviting people to come here and actually I learned my life was transformed from, totally, by them. You know, and totally. you, you also talked last night, I think, was it uh, about the Good Samaritan and this idea that not just that we love our enemies, but we learn, learn from, to love learn from, from our them. enemies. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and that's the journey that we start off wanting to do something heroic and actually realize that it's being saved from our heroism that is part of salvation. It's the demons that say to Jesus, I, I like there's certain things that I'm, God won't let go of me around. Um, and one of it those things is the parable of the Good Samaritan. This past year, I've, I've meditated on it more than any other in my life, and it's it's so incredible. Um, and one of the other things is um, this whole thing about why is it that the demons know who Jesus is, but don't know what that looks like? So they're always right in saying, you're the Messiah of the Most High, but always wrong in knowing what Messiah looks like. And we need our understanding of salvation to be saved. Um, we need to be saved from being white saviors um, uh, or first world saviors or um, uh, uh, people who have grown up in some of the wealthiest um, places in the world saviors. And we need to understand that in the words of Lilla Watson articulating the wisdom of her people, um, from far north Queensland as an Indigenous woman, she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. Mm. But if you've come here because you realise that your liberation is tied up in mine, mm. then we can work together. Mm. That's the ecology of kindness, which is the kingdom mm. of a king who reigns from across. That's the sovereignty that has actually passed through this powerlessness of Calvary. That is a redefining in our understanding of power. And so 
want to do something great for God and realize that'll be wasting your life on things that people think you missed your opportunities because you did small faithful things and other things that people thought were ridiculous and others will look back later and go, oh yeah, yeah, we always supported and you just bless them. Mm. You're just like, awesome. But that's the, that's the real stuff. So, I mean, if people want to find those stories, yeah, they can. It's, it's, yeah. But there's enough stories of white, straight, middle-class fellas like me out there. That's not what we need. We need stories of communities of people where it's not about individuals, but ecologies of kindness where um, we're being liberated together um, and, uh, like, becoming models of that where we, we lift up. Um, you know, I got a message from um, my mate, Nicole, who's a, a amazing uh, woman, um, uh, who uh, Aboriginal woman who, since coming to Christ, has um, uh, stepped into a level of celebration of what it means for her to be an Aboriginal woman that um, wasn't part of her life previously. And that's the journey. Mm. What is it to um, find our stories where we give up our, our shallow identities, where we seek to fit in, mm. and instead um, undergo the power where we get back our stories and we find the resources that are in them. But even if I was to start like listing a litany of individuals, I'd give the wrong impression that it's about us becoming like the Nicoles um, or like the book apprentices um, or, 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 or like um, uh, my gorgeous wife, Kathleen, um, or like we, we start talking about, but it's not about lifting up individuals. It's, it's actually about becoming a community together where we can celebrate one another without people being of more worth or more intrigue even than others. Um, we need to become communities of, of shared dignity where we can weep together, where we can laugh together, where we can praise together, and we can reintegrate, not just react, to the traditions that have formed us to this point that have, we've seen Jesus in. And how do we go deeper in that together? And that'll that'll be a work. And that's why charismatics and contemplative should always be found together. Mm. Uh, that's why the Church of Ireland and Catholics should always be fi- found together. That's why um, Presbyterians and Pentecostals should always be fi- found together. That's why Christian communities must have um, uh, our Muslim friends not only welcome but listen to and learn from um, uh, in our midst. That's why... Um, in spaces that predominantly straight, we must listen to those who don't fit into those heteronormative realities because they, for the sake of the gospel, we must learn their experience and hear that experience. So we become people of humility and are able to um, uh, step out of the coercive power that Jesus saves us from and into the power of resurrection where it's not easy identity games of who's in, who's out, who's woke, who's not. Um, but actually the, the joyful business of learning to be communities that um, can hear the cries of creation and worship in such ways that are good news for the land and be kind to others. Um, we probably should bring it to an end. Um, I, it's really good to talk, Jared, um, and we'll keep talking after the, the microphones get turned off. But just to kind of bring it back to... Um, this wonderful film that I'm making. That's right. <laughs> Good which, for you for which, a nine uh, to yeah, do that. Yeah, I'm yeah, proud yeah. of you. Moving That's to my part three, of, you know, part of your redemption. <laughs> Moving to the three. Yeah. Good well, for you. I don't know if it's a wonderful film. You know, I I started. Well, it is. It's I, I can be vouch for the yeah, first five yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's uh, going to be. I never endorse a book yeah, I don't read, so yeah, I can't yeah, endorse yeah, a film that I haven't seen yeah, all of it. But the first five minutes is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, it is good, and I think 
I think what I intended is a different documentary than what I intended to make. Um, and it's not just me, obviously, making it. It's my, particularly my colleague, Josh Eves, who's the mm. brilliant cameraman and editor who's making it all happen. But I think originally I intended to make a kind of a, a film that was a hard-hitting a critique of Christian nationalism and how religion can be in the uh, can be co-opted by nationalism to um, to become this horrible bedfellow that becomes mm. toxic and poisonous and ends in war and genocide. And that was my kind of original hard hitting critique. It's ended up being a a warm film of uh, of the power of the tragedy of, of of pain and the power of redemption and love. And as you're talking about stories that that we belong to each other, um, uh, what do you call the guy who works? Um, Gregory Boyle, Father Gregory Boyle works with um, Homeboy gang, Industries. Homeboy yeah, Industries. Yeah. And he, he's, I've hung out there. It's I, phenomenal. I really. Yeah. I love how he talks about how we belong to each other. And the, in the film that, that I tell, it's really looking at three people who, who suffered greatly. One guy's three brothers were, were shot dead in cold blood. Another uh, woman whose husband was, uh, was shot dead by the IRA in front of her and her two-year-old daughter. Um, and a man whose whose wife was killed in the Shankill bomb, and very three different very different stories over three different decades. Um, but you realize that the redemption of this land um, is not going to be swe- sweeping those stories under the carpet. Um, but hearing the stories and hearing the pain and the complication in it all of that there was collusion involved, that there was struggle and pain and complexities. And it wasn't just the good guys killed the, and the bad guys killed the good guys. And it Mm. was, it was just a horrible mess, but, but redemption comes in hearing the stories and allowing those people to encounter each other to an extent. And, um, and and realized that there was something I wasn't really meaning to talk about in my film much, but now I'm that I am, I'll just it's I'll important. just finish with this. Uh, during the film, we interview Father Mark uh, Ephraim, who's uh, the prior of the Benedictine Monastery in Rostrever, a very godly man. And I, I talked about forgiveness, and he says about how forgiveness can often be a, a trite word. Um, Christians, we kind of sanctify it and make it very simple. Um, and then he talked about a friend of his, a brother, Frere Alain, who died in the Holy Land. And, and on his deathbed, as, as quite a relatively young priest, the uh, doctor said, I can't believe you're suffering so young of this terrible illness. And, and Frere Alain looked at him and he said, um, and he wrote it down uh, on a piece of paper. And, and on, the, on, the, on the piece of paper, what was written was, suffering gives us no rights. And uh, Father Mark said, Part of the problem in, in Ireland, in the north here, is that both sides feel that our suffering has given us the right to inflict suffering on other people. Uh, and instead of allowing our suffering to be transformed, you know, not swept under the carpet, not denied, but to be transformed. Mm. And, um, and I think that if we can do that, we then become guardians of the flame. We become mm. people whose religion is not... Um, people who deny the suffering of others mm-hmm. and try to spiritualize it. Yeah. Uh, we, we try to say, let's just have a disembodied faith of let's sing worship songs all day and not actually deal with the messiness of life. But we become people whose religion causes us to, to warm society and, and kind of infect society with with the love uh, of God that reaches into the darkness. You know, yeah. we were talking this week about 
uh, in Belfast, our motto used to be holiness means moving towards darkness. You know, mm. uh, we were living in, in a working class community that was famous for all the wrong stuff. And we tried to set up to tabernacle with people there, you know, mm-hmm. and we, the, the understanding was that in John one, we see a God who ex- shows his holiness, not by sitting on a white throne and not thinking about bad things. He, mm-hmm. he moves towards humanity and becomes one of us. And that's what it means to be holy. So, and Jared, I just finished with that. I thank you for being someone who in a simple, courageous way, you choose to live a life of, um, moving towards, uh, the things in, in the world that are not always quite right. And mm-hmm. the people that don't always smell the best or are not like you, they're different <laughs> from you. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and, for, and because you've chosen, you've taken those small steps of, uh, kindness, you are leaving a legacy of love in Australia and I think around the world. And, and, uh, may you, may we, may I, may everyone listening, may we leave a legacy of love in how we, uh, live our lives. And, uh, Amen. so thanks for for of being course, here Johnny. Oh, and it's a, it's I want you to come back and, and you're going to bring your new yeah, bride well, back with you. Oh, that'd be great. I mean, Kathleen McKenna, it's, uh, <laughs> she, she sounds more Irish than me, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great name for a Dutch girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, great. you know, what's a, a, amazing as we close. So before being here, I was in Bulawayo, mm. um, in Zim mm. and I, I was in, it's like one of those incredible moments of your life where you realize that they've brought you in to facilitate and teach and it's, you know, you, you are always in a learning position, but, um, you know, I'm surrounded by young activists, most of whose, uh, everybody has a family member that went missing mm-hmm. or was, uh, experienced, um, the disappearances and genocide in the eighties and, um, uh, half the room had been tortured and, uh, they kept talking about human rights and you were talking about rights there and, and I'm so aware that we need Christians to talk about human rights more, not less. Uh, but we need to talk about human rights in the deep sense that any Christian understanding of human rights brings an end to all human wrongs. And so a human rights never come at the cost of others because we're now operating in stories where no more blood needs to be shed. And um, they, their language of human rights so inspired me. Like, um, and what is it for, for, for Christians willing to suffer as they're willing to suffer, um, uh, to put an end to suffering? How do we recover the language of human rights, um, as a Christian language that doesn't perpetuate human wrongs and realizes that, that we, we belong to each other. And so I'm thankful for, mm. for your work, mm. Johnny, and mm. uh, this doco that's coming out, uh, but also this podcast and, mm. um, that mm. kind of stuff. And if people are at all interested, um, I have the Parison podcast, which is about, um, action that is, um, uh, comes from a, a deep Christian contemplative place. And the other podcast is about, um, uh, reading the Bible to turn the world upside down. It's called the inverse podcast. So if that's the kind of thing that's helpful for people, mm. um, it's people such as yourself that I try and get on to those shows. So, um, I'll throw that out there as a, another, another network of kindness that yeah, we can uh, yeah. connect with and go deeper. So yeah, thanks mate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks Jared. Thanks so much. Ooh.